Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Evolve Medical Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to Diabetic Eye Disease Pipeline Therapies Part 1. My name is Christina Wang. I'm going to be the moderator for today's discussion on Farisimab, KSI-301, and OPT-302, three exciting agents that we have coming up down the line. I want to take a moment to thank Evolve Medical Education for supporting this CME webinar. This is actually the first of a three-part series on diabetic eye disease, and we also have a companion series on wet AMD, so definitely check that out if you haven't yet. It is my great pleasure to welcome here today my colleague and good friend, Dr. David Eichenbaum, who's a collaborative associate professor at the University of South Florida, Morsani Medical College, and he also serves as, as the director of research at Retina Vitreous Associates of Florida in Tampa. Welcome, David. Always a pleasure. Nice to see you. Uh, it's always one of my great joys to work with you, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Thank you. The feeling is mutual. So we're here to learn from you today about three exciting novel agents, Farisimab, KSI-301, OPT-302. And these are, you're going to tell us about how they might be able to refine our treatment choices and provide longer durability for our patients. But I thought before we delved into that, we'd start off with a case discussion. This is actually a real life patient of yours. I think it's really, first of all, topical because this patient had their treatment course disrupted by the global COVID-19 pandemic that we all had to deal with over the past year and a half. And I think it really underscores the need for agents like the ones we're going to talk about today in offering longer durability. So David, uh, without further ado, tell us about the 60-year-old man with uncontrolled type 2 diabetes. Sure, absolutely. I love starting with a case. It kind of brings all of this into real life. And it's going to be interesting to see how long our uh, patients continue to have disruptions from COVID-19, in addition to all the other things that disrupt diabetics, you know, hospitalizations, kidney disease, lower extremity disease, cardiovascular and neurovascular disease. Now they're at risk for this other big disruption, like this poor fellow. Uh, this is a guy who um, is kind of a standard issue, uh, I guess, middle-aged diabetic. I'm 45 now, so 60 seems more and more middle-aged. <laughs> he's a 60-year-old, uncontrolled diabetic. A1C is kind of in that average bad range of about nine. Not terribly bad, but certainly something that is not stable and not good for his disease progression. He's had sporadic intravitreal injections and had his last shots, oh, four to six months before he came to me. Like a lot of patients, he has uh, uh, commercial insurance, and that keeps changing, and uh, his doctors and his group of healthcare providers keeps changing along with that. Um, access complications are unfortunately part of the story for a lot of our commercial patients. He's uh, 20 over 63 in the right eye, 20 over 50 in the left eye. He's phagic. He has normal intraocular tensions, and when we see him here in February, We'll focus on his right eye for the purposes of this case. And it looks like this kind of what at least I would expect in someone who's been diabetic for six or maybe eight or 10 years without ever having good sugar control and really sporadic treatment. Um, what do you think of that eye? Scary or not scary? Well, definitely not normal. Let's start with that. I mean, there's patchy capillary dropout that you can see there. And then you can see in these lates, there's this kind of diffuse smoldering leakage that's consistent with microvascular integrity uh, loss, if you will. 
And I was wondering if he maybe even had a little bit of NVD, uh-huh. just a hair. It looks, it, it was tough for me to call it for sure, but it sure looked like it, uh, like leaking a bit like a sieve into the vitreous. And, you know, not the scariest diabetic eye we see, but certainly not a walk in the park eye either. Kind of like an eye that looks like it could be a boatload of trouble. Cross-section mirrors the diffuse leakage that we would uh, that we'd expect to see given the uh, the angiogram, diffuse cystic diabetic swelling. Some of this is probably a little less thick than one would expect, but I think sometimes these ischemic eyes just can't thicken up like eyes with good circulation. I don't have a great paper to point out that fact, but it's kind of a, um, a sense that I get. So uh, I start him on monthly aflibercept in both eyes, vision's 20 over 50 or worse, diffuse cystic macular edema related to diabetic eye disease. Uh, and I hadn't yet set on PRP for him yet. I thought I'd treat him with anti-angiogenic since he's mostly a DME patient. He gets seven shots. Last injection is January. He's going about six weeks or so between shots at this point. Comes in March of 2021 huge success 20 over 25 in the right 20 over 32 in the left subjectively subjectively the vision's a lot better and uh his exam has improved a bunch i uh went ahead and repeated the oct and the angiogram i kind of wanted to see what happened to the non-perfusion if i should prpm i think there's a great recovery of circulation here it's a heck of a lot more competent in that area that probably was nvd is fully resolved now. A really good looking eye. He wasn't eager about doing PRP. His ischemic kind of thin macula is completely dry with a suggestion of a foveal contour consistent with his doubling of visual acuity. And I go ahead and give him an extension, but it's March 2021 in Florida. So what happens to him? He catches COVID and doesn't come back for a little while, which is sad and happens a ton in certain geographies. You're in Texas. Did you see this as well? We definitely did. And, you know, I think you really stated it nicely when we first started, David, that diabetic patients already have unique challenges with compliance and adherence to our treatment plans. And the global COVID-19 pandemic really threw an extra obstacle for them. So it's really unfortunate to see this really unfair for the diabetics. Fortunately, he got better. He was hospitalized. Um, Can't remember if he was ventilated or not. He comes back instead of eight weeks later, about 14 weeks later, 14, 15 weeks later. And he says his eyes are as bad as they were when he first came. He came back because he still had access and uh, he was happy with how things had been going. And I repeat the imaging on him and his OCT looks essentially like it did when he came in without treatment, which really isn't a surprise. The drugs don't last forever, which is going to feed into our next part of the conversation. We'd like our drugs to last longer. He clearly didn't make it 14, 15 weeks, even though he was good to six and possibly good for eight. On the next slide, you'll see he responds beautifully. Once again, his visual acuity improves, but not as quickly as it used to. He doesn't think he's snapping back. And even though his OCT scan looks nice and dry following the reinitiation of treatment, there's emerging data that fluctuations in diabetic macular thickness do yield a gradual reduction of visual acuity. And we're seeing that his Snellen acuity isn't coming up and his subjective acuity isn't coming up. He's still getting regular treatment through today in October of 2021. Uh, but he's not coming up like he did when I saw him coming up on a year ago now. 
And, and this is really frustrating, David, and I've had many patients go through this same process where they think that they may be able to regain what they've lost during what is relatively not even that long of a loss to follow up. And the truth of the matter is, is whether it's due to fluctuations or ongoing disease process, that is not always true. And when you take a couple of steps back, you may only be able to take one step forward and you've lost that ground. So I think it really just nicely highlights this critical need that we have, especially with diabetic eye disease for longer durability agents. I mean, if he had been able to get a treatment that had maybe carried him over through this period where he was lost to follow-up, he may be in a different situation. And so I think that's just a beautiful segue into what we're going to talk about today. You're going to tell us a little bit about verisimab, KSI-301, and OPT-302. These have exciting mechanisms of action and potentially can offer this longer dur durability that we're all seeking. So we'll start off with verisimab. Tell us a little bit about this, David. I always learn a lot sure. from you. Oh, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a pleasure. We're going to have a, a, a um, crash course on three agents during this uh, short uh, webinar or podcast that we're doing that would typically take two or three hours at the ASRS meeting, we're going to do it quickly. <laughs> Anti-VEGF therapies is what we currently have. This cartoon here shows the VEGF receptor and the VEGF ANR4 commercially available anti-VEGF monotherapies, the brolicizumab, for example, on the next click, you can see it binding to the VEGF-A and inactivating it temporarily, quite temporarily with our current agents as we just saw in the prior case. And the inhibition of the VEGF-A keeps the VEGF receptor unbound for a little while and there is a reduction of leakage permeability and vascular growth. Um, on the next slide though, we'll see there's a lot more going on. On the left side of this slide, at the next click, we'll see a whole bunch of stuff in the VEGF pathway. We have VEGF-A, but also other cytokines of VEGF that aren't inhibited by our current commercially available receptors. And VEGF-B, C, D, and E bind to other VEGF receptors. On the right side, the next click, we'll see there's a whole intermingled yet separate set of receptors, transmembrane receptors, a TIE2 receptor, which interacts with integrin and VE cadherin and works with the interplay of ANG1 and ANG2 to stabilize or destabilize the retinal vasculature. And all of this is going on, yet all that we're doing in 2021 is inhibiting VEGF-A. On the next slide here, we'll see a couple of cartoons explaining the interplay between the VEGF receptor and the TIE2 receptor. The top is homeostasis. You have the good actor, ANG1, which is constitutively expressed in the eye, binding to the TIE2 receptor and phosphorylating it. The VEGF receptor in your eye and mine, hopefully everyone's in the audience, is essentially unbound. And on the right side at the top, you see a healthy vessel encased with pericytes, intact tight junctions, no leakage or inflammation or neovascularization associated with it. At the bottom cartoon, when there is pathophysiology in the eye, you see an angiogenic switch where not just VEGF-A, but also angiopoietin-2 is upregulated. Angiopoietin-2 competes with angiopoietin-1, and ANG-2 is the bad actor. When there's more of it around, it outcompetes ANG-1, dephosphorylates the TIE2 receptor, and it works alongside VEGF-A to increase vascular leakage, destabilize vessels, remove pericytes through inflammatory processes and encourage neovascularization. So on our next slide, we will see why this is important. In the human vitreous, 
we see two different things happening. On the left side of the level of Angie Apuitin 1, it's always about the same. It's constitutively expressed in the eye, whether it's a control eye on the left side of the left box or a diabetic retinopathy eye on the right side of the left box with a little reddish dots in it. The box on the right shows the vitreous samples of eyes that have these pathophysiologies. These are human vitreous samples published in 2016. And we see that the proportion of ANG2 is statistically significantly much higher in retinal vascular diseases and macular degenerative diseases, especially remarkable in retinal vascular occlusion and diabetic retinopathy. And this relationship is important because on the next slide, we'll see that we are developing a way to inhibit both vascular endothelial growth factor and angiopoietin 2. We're going to knock out the known bad actor, FEDLEF-A, and simultaneously bind ANG2, which is our new suspect bad actor, which works with VEGFA, with furisumab, which is a bispecific molecule. When furisumab is pushed into the eye, what it's going to do on the first click, you'll see it binds to ANG2, and then it goes ahead and binds to VEGFA simultaneously. And with some human evidence that's now emerging, <clears throat> we see that we may have a more durable and or more potent treatment effect in diabetic macular edema and neovascular macular degeneration related to dual inhibition. Let's go on to the next slide and we'll see how that works as far as the transmembrane receptor goes. This is the receptor's post-angiogenic switch. ANG2, the bad actor, is bound to the TI2 receptor. VEGF, our old enemy, is bound to the VEGF receptor. The ANG1, the good actor, is outcompeted. And we put the furisumab into the mix. And what we see then is we restore homeostasis if we can truly bind enough of the ANG2 and VEGFA to allow ANG1 to tick back onto the TI2 receptor and the VEGF receptor to become unbound. When we do this, we'll see we may have a reduction of leakage, neovascularization, and inflammation that may be more profound than VEGFA inhibition alone. This is really a terrific summary, David, and I think you're absolutely right that we're sometimes a little tunnel visioned in that all of our therapies currently target VEGFA, but there's a whole plethora of other cytokines and inflammatory markers, et cetera, out there that are also involved in the pathogenesis of these diseases. So it's fantastic to see what potentially could be the first bispecific molecule and its potential uses to you know, possibly increase durability as well as maybe even efficacy as well by targeting this second player in the game. Thank you so much for that uh, summary. We're going to move on to OPT302. This is an interesting molecule to the point that I just made. You know, there are other isoforms of VEGF out there that are also involved with diabetic macular edema and diabetic eye disease. And two of those are VEGF C and D. And it's interesting to just remind ourselves that VEGF C and D actually are upregulated. We have evidence that they're upregulated when you suppress VEGF A. And so there may be some breakthrough that is happening when we use our classic anti-VEGF A agents. And so maybe using those in combination with OPT302, which blocks VEGF C and D could be helpful. Tell us a little bit about this molecule. Sure. So exactly like you said, VEGF C and D bind to other VEGF receptors than VEGF A. And what we see is, like you said, more C and D around when we suppress A with our current agents. And the question is, does suppressing more forms of VEGF 
yield better results? Well, we've got some early phase data on that. In a phase 2A study, patients who were previously treated with a flivercept, who is a relatively homogeneous population based on the inclusion criteria, as well as the requirements for the associated amount of injections in both the sham group and the OPT302 group to go into the study, are examined when exposed to either protocol a flibercept with a sham shot, just a flibercept alone functionally times three versus a flibercept plus OPT302. So on the left side of this slide, you see an incoming population of fairly uniform, homogeneous, frequently treated diabetics with persistent swelling. The blue in the middle is where patients are randomized to receive either a flibercept alone on the top in the gray dots or a flibercept plus OPT302 in the purple dots. And on the next slide, I will see what happens here. What we see is a dramatic signal in this small study looking at these patients who are treatment resistant. The columns on the left show that when the patients were injected with simply a flibercept, they gained three letters from a 64-letter baseline to plus three letters. When they were injected with a flibercept plus OPT302 in the purple column, they gained essentially twice as many letters over the course of 12 weeks. The graph on the right shows the difference. The patients treated with a flibercept alone in this homogeneous treatment-resistant population did get a little bit better because they're given protocol monthly of flibercept. But when that protocol monthly of flibercept is doubled down on, so to speak, with the OPT302, those patients did almost twice as well in a short amount of time with statistical significance, which is really interesting. On this slide here, we also see that the combination group favors big winners. The purple columns are combination of flibercept OPT302. The blue columns are flibercept as well. All of the patients in this small study who received combination did relatively well. Could have been luck of the draw, could be something to do with the combination with OPT302, but the big winners were OPT302 patients. And only in the aflibercept group were there patients on the right side of this slide who had some loss despite protocol-based aflibercept monotherapy. So another signal that patients are winning, at least in this phase two trial with combination therapy. Anatomically, the story mirrors what we saw functionally. We see a greater reduction in OCT thickness from baseline in this very treatment experienced, treatment resistant population when combination therapy is applied. The graph on the left shows that the OPT302 plus a flibercept combo dives deeper, they get drier, and the columns on the right show that at the primary endpoint at week 12, there is more than twice the reduction in OCT thickness when combination therapy is administered. So, David, so it's encouraging. I'm sorry, go ahead. I said it's encouraging. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And it, it's, it's neat to see that, again, by taking a broader view in suppression and addressing some of these players in the game, if you will, that we may be able to not just get longer durability, but potentially greater efficacy as we're seeing signals from this small study here. I wanted to ask you, OPT302 is delivered, at least at this point, as a separate injection in addition to the anti-VEGF A agent. What do you think it would take? I mean, do you think a three-letter margin, as we're seeing here in this small sub-analysis, would be convincing enough for both patients as well as retina specialists to be giving two injections instead of one? What are your thoughts there? that enough? I think in this particular population, which isn't doing well with frequent aflibercept, 
I think there would be a relatively low bar for trying something else. Um, this is the population that I currently use corticosteroids on, and you probably do the same thing based on our previous work together. But if I had a phagic patient or a glaucoma patient or a young clear lens or relatively clear lens patient with a comitative phagic eye, this would probably be a better thing to offer than adding in um, corticosteroid because of the risks associated with corticosteroid. Yeah, I completely agree. That's a fantastic summary. And if you don't mind wrapping things up here with KSI-301, this is also another exciting molecule. Tell us about KSI-301. Sure. So KSI-301 is even a more pure durability play than either furisumab, which is looking at durability, plus perhaps efficacy with a secondary functionality. OPT-302 currently is essentially an efficacy play with a separate functionality. KSI-301 is taking anti-angiogenics, which we know and love, and a flibercept-like substance, and packaging up on the right side of the slide an antibody biopolymer conjugate. Easy to remember, it's an ABC antibody biopolymer conjugate. It's a gigantic molecule about nine to 10 times the size of our largest intravitreal anti-angiogenics by molecular weight. <clears throat> and the idea is that it sheds over time gradual small amounts of anti-angiogenic protein. And on the next slide, <clears throat> we'll see that it has pretty good basic science pharmacokinetics. Because of its size, it has a remarkable intraocular half-life combined with excellent retinal bioavailability, similar to a liquid anti-angiogenic. Um, the deep inhibitory potency is something I don't understand quite as well as the other parameters that make up the antibody biopolymer conjugate, but it's nice to see that it does have fast systemic clearance. Um, it has an excellent safety profile. We've been involved in this molecule since phase one, and I've been following along with the presentations, and there have been hundreds of doses with a real absence of significant serious drug-related adverse events which is lovely to see in a phase one. It's very difficult to pull efficacy out of an uncontrolled open label phase one with broad inclusion and exclusion criteria. <clears throat> but what we see when we try to do that in the next slide, and we look at the DME population that has received KSI 301, either at the lower or higher dose, we see in this waterfall plot here on the right that a number of patients, according to the purple graph there, the purple arrow, or the purple waterfall have gone six months or longer without additional treatment, which is pretty impressive. Now, there are a lot of flaws in pulling efficacy out of a phase one open label trial. You can see that it's not uniform or consistent or necessarily completely dose responsive that patients are going six months, but there's a number of patients who are going a long time without a lot of shots. And clearly that's enough for KSI 301 to generate some interest because as, 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 as I think we've talked about before in other settings, it's going on to phase two and phase three studies in common retinal diseases, including diabetic macular edema. And we'll have to see if the proof is in the pudding when it's subjected to tighter inclusion, exclusion criteria and active aflibercept control. Well, thank you so much, David, for that wonderful summary. It was a whirlwind, but covered a lot of ground on these three new remarkable agents. We really appreciate your time, and it's always a pleasure to work together, David. It's a pleasure. You're, you're one of my favorite collaborators. Same. The feeling is mutual. And I just want to take a moment again to thank Evolve Medical Education for providing this CME webinar today, as well as for all of their terrific educational initiatives. Don't forget to check out the rest of this diabetic uh, eye disease series, as well as the wet AMD companion series, if you haven't already. 
Take care. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Evolve Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.